Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We're transitioning from the many psalms that have lined before us, particularly the psalms that were written for the sons of Korah. And if you'll note the heading of the 50th psalm, it says the psalm of Asaph. The psalm of Asaph. And there are, I believe, 12 psalms of Asaph in these 150 psalms in this particular book, which is book number two of psalms. Uh, they're, they're chronicled together. Uh, psalm 1 through 41 is book 1. Psalm 42 through, I think it's 72 is book 2. Uh, this is the only psalm attributed to Asa in that second book. When you get to the third book, which is, I think it's uh, 73 to 89 psalms, there are 11 that are attributed to Asa. And he's quite the individual, uh, particularly... He was one of the chief singers of Israel. You'll find his name mentioned several times in the book of Chronicles. Uh, interestingly, you'll find him mentioned with three other or two other individuals. Uh, Heman, Heman, who was a descendant of Samuel. I think it was either a son or a grandson. And then also of uh, Ethan. Uh, and they, when they're mentioned together, Heman is always in the first position. Asaph is always in the second position. And Ethan's always in the third position, and that's in the 16th chapter of Chronicles, uh, 1 Chronicles, and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. In reference to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, that's where you'll find of some of the genealogy of Heman in particular. But these were men of renown that would sing before the temple of God. And they would align themselves, and probably in the most preeminent place would be uh, Heman, and then secondarily would be Asaph, and then tertiarily would be, of course, uh, Ethan, and they would sing illustriously unto the king of heaven. And Asaph, uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, I think it's in Second Chronicles chapter 29, he is mentioned as one of the chief singers along with David, particularly uh, it's during the time of Hezekiah. Uh, and Hezekiah is bringing all the words, the scripture said, of David and of Asa the seer. And these are some of these same psalms. And he is chronicling them together, placing them together for the reading and the worship of all the children of Israel and calling them to remember these things. The 50th Psalm and the 51st Psalm, if you want a reason why it would seem, as in the canon of Scripture, uh, you've got one here of Asa and then you've got to go to book 3 to find the other 11. I think my, my willingness to delve out here would say this. I believe the part of that has to do with how it's linked together with the 51st Psalm. The 50th and the 51st Psalm are chronicled as judgment psalms. Judgment psalms. The 51st Psalm is sometimes classified beyond a judgment psalm and it's called a penitent psalm. Because the 51st Psalm, obviously, and if you'll note the heading there, it talks about David's sin with Bathsheba. And so they kind of move together and they're not unintentionally associated. There would seem to be a divine purpose in its placement in this order and in this arrangement. Namely, that the 50th Psalm is talking about a general judgment on one of the oldest sins that Christians have the capacity to commit. And then the 51st Psalm talks about an individual sin and likely, in fact almost for sure, when David writes the 51st Psalm, he's also guilty of the 50th Psalm as well. And I was reading in one of my commentaries this week and I laughed out loud. They said, uh, this commentary he's writing, he's, he's admonishing you as you 
exegete the papture, as you draw out the scriptural truths, he said, um, he said, try to do it in the most positive light. And the reason I laughed is it's a judgment psalm. There's a bunch of unpleasant things that are said. And to stand and honestly convey it brings into check and balance. And you wonder, man, how much of me preaching just a complete positive essence is changing the very course of scriptures. But it does deal with an old sin. Let me explain what I mean by that. Psalm 50 deals with, I would say among believers, one of the oldest sins. It's a sin that so easily we engage in. In fact, it's a sin that some right now in this room could be engaging in. Note, if you will, and I'll give you our theme, it's talking about two indictments. The first of these indictments is formalism. The second is hypocrisy. He's talking about feigned worship of God. About worshiping God with our actions, worshiping God with our lips. Yet, though this passage is not found in the 50th Psalm, our heart being so far from God. See, David in the 51st Psalm is guilty of this. As I mentioned in the Sunday school hour, he didn't just one day wake up after having the previous day a perfect walk with God and communing with God, and then the very next day, that was Monday, and then Tuesday, he woke up and said, My, I think I'm going to sin today. It didn't work like that. You see, for a child of God, your worship to God is something of a spiritual thermometer. It's genuineness, it's sincerity, it's holiness. It's something of a spiritual thermometer which, if you'll lean to it, can show you whether or not you're walking with God or not. But equally, it could be said, right? How do I know if I'm engaged in true worship? Is that just coming to church? Have I fulfilled true worship if I've just come to church? Have I fulfilled true worship because I read the Bible? Have I fulfilled true worship because I have singularly prayed? Worship, I feel too often, especially in this day and hour we live, is very subjective. Some would attribute worship by feelings. Meaning, if I can sing a song with such gusto and such forcefulness, have I then worshipped God? I'm going to be honest with you. Personally, it is so easy to fall into the sin of formalism and hypocrisy. It is so easy to worship God, or at least I should say, engage in activity that could be seen as worshiping God, and not worship Him at all. The problem is this, God is the mighty God. He is our God. And he is keenly aware of disingenuous worship, even if the person sitting next to us is not aware of it. And that is to which the 50th Psalm speaks. There are two indictments, and then there are two corrections to those indictments. But I want you to notice this morning really the summons in keeping with indictments and summons and the fact that the Lord articulates himself as being the judge of his people, 
Let's open up the 50th Psalm and get a look at the summons. The summons to judgment, if you will. Note, he says, the mighty God, even the Lord. I want you to step back from that a moment and draw your attention to it. If you write in your Bible, take your pen. And you circle the word mighty, though it's not capitalized in text and need not be. And the word God and the word Lord. And, and I want to I give you a little Hebrew thought here. The word mighty, and its base root is the word El. El. It's being used here not as a directive of, uh, of uh, uh, classifying divinity or a name of God, but it's referencing an adjective that describes the word God. The word God here, mighty, El, God, Elohim. So when throughout the Hebrew text you find the word mighty God, it would singularly be El Elohim. And then he uses a third reference to the Trinity here, even the Lord. And that is, of course, Yahweh, Jehovah God. He's classifying and clarifying himself just in case anybody forgets. He is exclusively the only mighty God. He is God. He is the only God. He is the only Lord of Lord and King of Kings. But he, in fact, is a mighty God. That is the descriptive word of Elohim. The mighty, exalted God. And from this is going to flow all of this that is going to showcase the dangerous uh, 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 calls of which sin has been brought before his judgment. It's going to describe him. He said, the mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken. And note this. He's called earth. And notice how he's quantifying this with this prepositional phrase. From the rising of the sun to the going down thereafter. I guess that means the world is flat, right? No. No, it's not. But in this figure of speech... You get this idea. The mighty God has called the earth and its habitation. From as far east as one can go to as far west. That is the direction in which the sun rises and set, is it not? There is no people. There is no saint that could take himself, as David said in the 139th Psalm, to the far corners of the world, as it were, that is beyond the escape of God having the capacity of judgment over them. You know, here in our fair land, we have judges, and the judges sit under districts, or they sit under states. And so, you know, if you're here in, I don't even know the magistrate judge, to my shame, but, well, if you're in my neck of the woods over where I live, in Lower Paxton, and police officer pulls you and gives a ticket, and you want to appeal that, you've got to go to, Magistrate Judge Lindsay, who's down the road off Locust Lance, where you got to go. If you're off North Mountain Road, it's Judge Werner. That's uh, Werner. That's who you've got to go over there. And so you have these different, and that's their districts. If you get a ticket in Lower Paxton, you're not going uh, over where I live in Lower Paxton. You're not going to Judge Werner. It's not his district. And then we're by counties in our Commonwealth, and there are so many. What is it, nine or ten uh, judges of Court Count Economy, please? But if you committed a crime and resided and committed that crime, etc., in Bucks County, you're not going to send her to the decree and judgment of someone in Dolphin County. If you lived out of state and committed a crime that had nothing to do with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you would never sit under the decree of a judge from Dolphin County. If you never lived in the United States of America and you committed a crime that had nothing to do with America, etc., you would not be under the jurisdiction of these judges. 
But the Lord in His judgment gives His massive jurisdiction the earth. All of its habitation. Here's an essence of truth in regards to worship of God. God seeks His people to worship Him and requires it to be done in such a way that pleases Him regardless to the culture and habitation of those people. I do not get an escape from God's judgment in a practical sense or in a potent sense of the general judgment that is to come simply because of my nationality or my right of birth. I will not be able to say because I'm an American. No more than the Jew could say in Romans chapter 2, Paul honed in on this, I'm a Jew. As though there's some special exemption done, God said, I would judge all the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. That's the summary judgment. He has established, if you will, His realm by which He has lawful ability to exercise this judgment. Notice, if you will, in verse number 2. That's the scope of His person. He talks about the movement of thence in verse 2. Out of Zion. The perfection of beauty. Hold on to that thought a moment. What is Zion? Well, in a physical sense, you could talk about the city of Zion. In one sense, the Jerusalem. You could think about that being the place of the temple. But then he talks about a perfection of beauty. Everything in the sanctuary of God had to be perfect. Perfect such a hard word, isn't it? I mean, perfect. But in the Old Testament, when the singers got up to sing, their service, the sons of Kohath, their service was to be done in such a way to reflect the character of God. That's why in the decor of the temple, Precious stones and gold were used. It was to reflect the intrinsic value of who God is. In the Old Testament, they would speak particularly of the tabernacle, the brazen altar, that was brass. It speaks of a level of self-judgment. Why? Because in those days, they would polish that brass so that they could look in it, and what would they see? A reflection of themselves. The brass judgment... The brass altar speaks of the ability of coming and judging yourself before you what you know to be the commands of God. God was even very peculiar, particularly is a better word, very particularly about the, uh, the incense that was burned. Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, remember? They just flung something together. Several weeks ago we talked about Korah. I guess it was Father's Day. And do you remember in that particular chapter in Numbers... He was not supposed to have a censer. That was only to be to the high priest. God had authorized that and said, do this. But in his gainsaying against Moses, Moses said, let every one of you go get a censer. And they did. And they filled it with incense. And judgment was theirs. You see, of all that was in Zion, particularly when you consider the Old Testament, when you consider the laws and the commands and the and in a sense, the rituals that were to be made, they all reflected the perfect character of the Almighty God. 
so much so that as one would behold them and rightly and humbly worship God, that all the perfection that surrounded that temple, from the singing to the offerings to the sacrifice, to yea, it's even its very decoration was to do one thing. Notice the end of verse 2. God hath, what's the word? That's what it was supposed to do. True worship to God magnifies God. True worship should not magnify anyone but Him. He shineth. It's an interesting New Testament word. The word, the Greek word is epiphany. Epiphania is the Greek word, but epiphany. It's used in the New Testament, particularly in the second book of Thessalonians where he's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus. He has three words. And he, he talks about uh, the, the brightness of his coming. That's what this is. It, it, it's almost a very similar connotation. The fact of true worship has the fact to make God be broadcast and known and shine because after all, what man is worthy of worship? What really have you done or have I done in my life that I should come to the point and place that I'm worshipped? What have I done in my life? Who am I? What are my accomplishments that I should articulate for God what the desire of His worship should be? Worship is not about our feelings. Worship is not about our dreams. Worship is not about our expectation. Worship is by, of, about promoting the name and glory and wonder of Jesus Christ in the format by which He has standardized. I don't have the right to invent new ways to worship God. Note he says in verse number 3, in keeping of this summons to judgment, he speaks, our God shall come. He shall not keep silence. We read just a moment ago, read just a moment ago, he's, he's um, in the back portion of verse number 50. In verse number 20, he said, Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, slandering thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I what? I kept silent. Verse number three, and shall not keep silent. It's not a contradiction. When God comes to judge, though there may be a time by which, if I can put it in this sense, he's biting his lip, the time will come for the execution of all judgment. That's true of a judge. If you've ever had the opportunity to sit in even a, a magistrate judge or even a, a, a court of common pleas, you sit up there and hear some of those things, the judge doesn't do a whole lot of talking. Prosecutor does. He's accusing. The defendant does. He's defending. The witnesses are just watching. And occasionally the judge may ask a question. Occasionally a judge may get a clarification. Occasionally a judge may put things in a certain level, but as far as the orators of the courtroom, he is not. But when the jury is called back in, when the guilt is declared, the judge then does all the serious talking, does he not? He sentences. That's what he's talking about here. There's going to come a day where my actions as a believer, my actions as a child of God are going to be analyzed. And in that day, there are things right now that God might be holding his silence with me about. He's biting his lip. 
But mark this text of Scripture, there's going to come a day where the judge will speak and the world will be moved. His summons, he's describing this. That day in which he keeps not silence, a fire shall devour before him. You think of that fire, even, yea, throughout the Scriptures. Fire symbolizing the presence of God. He moves down to verse number 3 and talks about a tempest around him, a whirlwind. In description force, he's trying to describe the power of God's decree. Now note in this courtroom here, in verse number 4, you have the witnesses that are gathered. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. In verse number 5, you got the defendants gathered. Gathered my saints together unto me. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And then, conveniently with verse number 6, he again mentions himself. The heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. You almost see a throne room scene. The presence that all are gathered. He mentions back uh, about the heavens being called together. So much regarding the person and deity of God can be seen in his nature. The heavens declare. In Romans chapter 1, he speaks that they, seeing the handiwork of the Creator of God, that they worshipped Him not as God, became vain in their imagination. That this natural revelation, and I speak of that as earth as we know it, that it show forces His eternal might and power. Notice over there, I'm not doing an adequate job quoting it. Look in Romans chapter 1. Let me read it to you. For the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhood, so that they are without excuse. There's something wonderful to behold, but one day the natural revelation will stand in part as an accuser against how saints have worshipped him. I could speak again of Matthew chapter 6. He talks about the lilies growing, the toiling not. He speaks of the fowl of the air, having no master, making them nest. He speaks over of the creation, go to Proverbs chapter 30, and the eloquence by which the Holy Spirit of God moves upon Lemuel as he describes him of the very nature and beholds the truths that therein contain. One day to stand in great stark contrast. I think sometimes when it gets to this matter of worship and consideration of the things of God, we look in our own heart. The problem is, we're not simply under sin. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And they had the capacity of, def- of uh, developing a despicable understanding of truth and packaging it as godliness. The heavens, he says there in verse number 3, the heavens shall not keep silent. They shall be called above. Notice this first indictment given in verse number 7. Hear, O my people, I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. God, your God, am I. 
I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. That's an interesting verse. He's going to talk about all of this indictment that's laid against him, but in verse number 8, he gives clarity here. He said, I'm not going to reprove thee for thy sacrifices. Why? Well, the singular fact is, on the surface of this indictment, on the surface when you looked at them, everything looked well done. As we'll see in a moment, this, one, this uh, indictment is the indictment of a formal worship. Stuck in the traditions of men. He said, but the worship itself, they had obeyed. They had only Levites offering sacrifices. That's the way it was supposed to be. They had met on the correct day. That's the way it was supposed to be. They had observed all the rituals. That's the way it was supposed to be. They had the right attire. The priest attire was all gathered. That was the way it was supposed to be. They had the right sacrifices. They understood all of the holy days, the wrong timing. Yet they had a complete wrong understanding of it. I'm not reproved thee. Why? Because on the surface, I couldn't tell you, hey, the problem is you're bringing a wrong sacrifice. I couldn't say, well, the problem actually is it's the wrong day. As it pertained to the actual physical worship, on the surface, that's exactly what could be said God wanted. On the surface. Notice, if you will, in verse number 9, I will take no bullock out of thy house nor he goats out of thy fold. David's going to say something quite interesting in the 51st Psalm. He's going to talk about the sacrifices. Verse number 16. Thou desirest not sacrifices, else I would give it. God told them, but the essence of it, they had come to the point that what God really wanted was for them to kill a bunch of sheep and bullocks. That is what he's commanded. But the whole reason he commanded that was a showcase about his perfection. The reason you have all of the Old Testament commandments, all of the Old Testament rituals, all of the Old Testament uh, law had to be for one thing, and that was the revelation to all the world of the person of Jesus Christ. And they had become entrenched in formalism and tradition and missed the whole purpose. Notice what he says in verse 10 and following. I'll take no goat. I'll take no bullock. Every beast of the forest is what? It's mine. I don't need you to give me something that belongs to me. The cattle upon a thousand hills. We often sing of that chorus in the essence of that being provision, you know. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mind, you know. We focus on that upon the majesty and power of God. But the reaction, reality, though that's true, the reality is it comes in context. He wants you to realize he owns it all. Can I put this in a New Testament illustration? Formalistic worship of the day, because we're not bringing cattle and bullock, etc., but we bring of our money. All of the cash in the world, guess who it belongs to? Notice what he says in verse 11. I know all the files of the mountains. That's fantastic. Um, every great while, I'll be in the lobby or over at my house, and my favorite birds are a cardinal and a blue jay, partly because I can see them. That's part of it. But do you know how many black and white birds there are? Well, yesterday I pulled in about 5.30 last night, and he dropped some stuff off. And under the portico here sat, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen big, greasy-looking blackbirds. 
Now the fact is, I can't describe them much more than that. I don't know what they were. There's plenty of birds that exist that I can describe certain things to you, but I, my eye's not keen enough, my mind not sharp enough to simply say what God said, that all of the fowls of the mountain, He knows of them. All of the wild beasts of the field are mine. Do you realize all of your possessions of this life belong to God? Who made the gold by which your currency stands for? Who made the gold? Who made the silver? Who made the wood or the stone by which your residence is composed of? Does God really need you to give that stuff to Him? Notice verse 12. It's almost a level of divine sarcasm here. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, the fullness thereof. Now, does God get hungry? God didn't need you to bring him a cake of unleavened bread simply because he didn't want to cook. God doesn't need you to bring him to the old, in the Old Testament economy. He doesn't need you to bring a perfect little lamb, the best that you had, simply because he was too poor to afford. <laughs> Almost said pork, but that would have been sacrilege, wouldn't it? Because he was too poor to afford hamburger himself. When we speak about our offerings to God and our lives and resources, God doesn't need it because he's impoverished. In this level, in verse number 12, where he says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. I would not tell thee. There's such blatant truth there. The perfect creator God has no need. This is from my understanding. His ability to provide, His ability to know, His ability to keep, His ability to plan are so far in advance of my comprehension of His sovereign plan that he surely would not inquire of me if he were hungry. Marvel about that for a moment. That's your God. That if he were hungry, he already had a plan for it. He didn't need you to do it. If he were hungry, man, that would be like the reversal of the role, wouldn't it? One day that's going to happen for us. These years as children, you know, one day my children are going to have to remind me of doing stuff that I constantly nag them about. One day if I live long enough, I hope my children have to fight with me about brushing their teeth. Not them, but me. I'm going to fight with them. I've already planned to be a mean old man. Remind me to comb my hair, you know, stuff like that. I would have told thee, he said. Formality. Notice verse 13. Will I eat the flesh of bulls? Is God going to eat that? File that in the back of your head just for a moment. Or drink the blood of goats. That brazen also, they will pour gallons upon gallons upon gallons of blood. Am I drinking that, saith the Lord? It's rhetorical. There's no answer. Why? Because the answer is understood by anybody that can consider for a moment. The answer is no. So why is he asking the question? 
because their worship was formality. They were worshiping just like the pagans worship. And the pagans would worship just like that. They would bring of, of whatever provision it was. Those that lived by the coast, you know, that worship maybe like Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, they, they would bring the fish, their bounty, and they would bring it before Dagon, and Dagon needed that fish so that he could eat. Or, or like the Egyptian gods. They would take of all their bounty and they would bring it to them. Those pharaohs buried, they said the average pharaoh that they have been able to excavate around was buried with the worth of millions of dollars and sustenance and servants. Why? Because he would need it. As a pagan mentality. The Greek god, Dionysus and Ephesus and all. And you know, the psalmist would describe later about them having eyes that could not see and hands that could not help and ears that could not hear. All the sacrifices that individuals would bring to them. Why did they do it? Because in the back of their mind, they had to do it because the God needed it. Will I eat the flesh? Is that what I am? If there's a fire in your house, are you going to have to save me? It's a common human worship. And might I say this, the problem lies in this regard. Deep within the heart of every human, God has instilled, because you are a creation of God, God has instilled a desire to know the God that created you. Evolution is nothing, I mean, that is insanity. It, It defies the laws of nature that we know. But the greatest defiance it does is it causes the human soul to be blatantly devalued to nothing. That it has no more moral worth than a critter in the wetlands. He has made you. He is the mighty God. He has measured out the water in the palm of his hand. He has thrust all of the stars in the sky and set them in the orbit. Does he really need your sacrifice and offering? No. Notice what he says, the cure to this first indictment, verse 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving. Hebrews chapter 13 references this as the sacrifice of praise of our lips. And note this expression. He said, you know what, I I want you to pay your vows to the Most High God. That's a reference to Leviticus of the peace offerings. Peace offerings, you you would bring your sacrifice to God. This wasn't a sin offering. This wasn't a burnt sacrifice. This wasn't uh, uh, the the atonement. The peace offering, you you came to worship God. And you would offer that sacrifice... And while the blood of said sacrifice was upon the altar, you would begin to vow unto God. And it was always public. In fact, the thanksgiving, in the sense of the Old Testament connotation, was always public. Oh, how we've cheapened that in society. Oh, it's going to be between me and him, he knows. That's not how he did it in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's not a vow. He wanted you to stand up in front of everyone and say, this is the Most High God. His blood has atoned for me. He has brought peace. He has brought reconciliation. He wanted you to talk about all the wondrous things that He's done for you. That's the truest sense of worship. Now, I'm not saying we can't be thankful in our heart. But that's not what He's talking about here. 
I want you to pay your vows, the peace offering, a sacrifice of praise to your lips. Notice verse 15. I put an asterisk by this one in mine, in my margin. And call upon me in the day of trouble. Not take my name in the day of trouble. Call upon me. Old Nebo of the Babylonians never saved anybody. Not that Belshazzar wasn't calling upon him when Cyrus and the fellows were coming under the gates. Interesting passage, I was reading it just this week, talks about that his knees smote, the joints thereof were loosed. Nebo wasn't bringing him any peace. Go ask Pharaoh what Ra profited him in the day of his trouble. Go ask Goliath what Dagon profited him when the rocks were flying. And God said part of that paying of the vow and that thanksgiving, I want assurance, I want such a relationship that in the day of trouble you do not look for scheming, you look to call upon the name of the Most High God. And he made a promise, I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. That's what I want you to do. What's our response in a day of trouble? Panic, anger, fear, worry. Did I say anger? Did I say fear? Did I say worry? Excuses, blame, call upon me. How do you fix formalism? Formalism is corrected only by a true, genuine faith. When a child of God continually expresses their need for Him. Notice the second indictment, if you will. In verses 16, he says, The wicked. What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing thou hatest instruction, and casteth my words behind thee? You know of them, but you've ignored them. He said, what about you? Why are you worshiping? Why are you bringing bullocks? The other guys, faith wasn't always genuine. They're steeped in formalism. But these, they're steeped in the second indictment, that's hypocrisy. You don't even believe what you say you're believing. Your life is far from the God you say you worship. You have cast my words behind me. They do kind of go in a sequence, don't they? Formalism, formalism ultimately brings sin. Why? Because it doesn't simply have true saving faith. It's just an outward extremity. It's a tradition of fathers. And then once that sin has come, hypocrisy takes hold. Faith-filled worship brings obedience and subsequently makes that worship genuine. It's hard sometimes to tell of hypocritical worship, but he's going to elicit three things here. He's going to speak of three things that highlight this hypocritical worship. Notice, if you will, in verse number 18, when thou sawest a thief, what happened? Thou consented with him. Number 19, thou givest thou mouth to evil. 
speaketh against thy mother's, uh, speaketh against thy brother, which slandereth thine own mother's son. Oh, I missed this one in the end of verse number 18. Thou hast partnered with adulterers. I thought for a while, why these three? Essentially, he said, you've stole, you've committed adultery, and you've used your tongue in a malevolent manner. Why those three? Think of the Decalogue for a minute. All three of them are con- con- condemned in the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witnesses. And time will fail us, but if we were to go to the sixth chapter of Proverbs, he speaks about these things that God hate, and two or three of them have to do with the tongue. So this level of hypocrisy in worship is the idea of you come and worship God, but your life has no witness of the worship that you say you give. There's no reverence. There's no righteousness on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And on Sunday you come to worship and you give of your sacrifices, but really your heart is far from me. These things hast thou done, verse 21. I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such and one as thyself. That's a stiff phrase. You thought I was like you. It didn't matter if I was a little impure. It didn't matter if I was a little sinful. I think today we sometimes accuse God of things that he has pronounced himself the opposite of. We sometimes say, well, God understands. God understands my sin. God understands this. God understands this. And we've condemned condemned the very God that has created us. Is God part sin? Is God part wickedness? Is God's banner, the yin and the yang, a little good and a little evil? Is that who God is? Well, not according to this verse. I will reprove thee. Set them in order before thine eyes. And now he's going to give these last few verses on addressing hypocrisy. He said, now consider this. Ye that forget God, lest I tear thee in pieces. That's a, quite an interesting phrase, I tear you to east. It has the idea of the beast in the, wild, in the wild, like a predator, like the lion that is gnashed upon the gazelle. He's tore him asunder. You know, I think sometimes there's believers... And they wonder why their worship is not accepted of God. They wonder why some things in life occur. Sometimes God sends difficulties in our life as a way of correction. Now listen, I'm not saying every difficulty in your life is because God's correcting us. not what I'm saying. There are other reasons. And in Scripture, sometimes He does send difficulties in the life of His children who are forgetful. And those of you that have had the opportunity to be around children, is that not a means for their training? 
Isn't it sometimes around a child that there's correction necessary so they'll walk the right path? Herein is the case. My friend, if you and I have a worship that is hypocritical or so dead and dry and formalistic, steeped manner of tradition, we're missing the whole point of how we worship God. He would have us to worship with a genuine, true faith. These days we live, you hear so much in regards to worship experience. The greatest way that you can worship God is to be consistently living for Him. That's exactly what Romans says. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you do what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable. And be not conformed with this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable. And you know what God wants from you? You. Tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I have a little bit of problem with that. Not problem in the sense that I don't think it's right. Problem in the sense that I don't think that I'm so great of an offering to God. But my emotional platitudes in that regard are not sound doctrinally because of Romans chapter 5. In that while we were yet sinners, God wants you to need Him. He wants you to walk with Him. He wants you to commune with Him. He wants you, as He say here in the 15th verse, to call upon Him in the day of trouble. He wants a consistent and persistent relationship with you as child. Now listen, when I'm walking with God and I'm communing to Him, on Sunday you know where I want to be? But when I'm communing and walking with Him, that's also the place I want to be on Saturday and Friday and Thursday. Are you with me? Are we on the same frequency? That's the heart God wants. I realize there's times in life that I am separated from the presence of corporate worship. But my heart ought to yearn His presence. I ought to put His corporate worship when I meet together with other saints at such a preeminence in my life that I'm going to do all that is possible to arrange my schedule so that I can enjoy that time to worship God in the corporate setting. Why? Because my heart joys to do so. David said of it this way. He said, I would just soon be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to split all the wealth of the world with the wicked. I'd rather be the guy that's an usher. You know, here we usually, Sunday morning, you're often, Sunday school, if you get here for Sunday school, you're often greeted by three kids. Now, I'm not, they're not here. 
and I'm not trying to trivialize it. But there's not a whole lot required of them to do that. Don't fight, don't jump on each other. Give everybody a bulletin, look cute. The last one they mostly can do. That's their job. You might look at that and say, it's not very important. It's not very important. Our church could get along without having those wonderful little goofballs out there. God doesn't need you. He wants you. Notice this last verse in verse 20. Whoso offereth praise, what does he do? Glorifieth me. The greatest sacrifice you can give God is yourself. And that he through you might have glory and honor unto himself. He that offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that ordereth his conversation right will I shew the salvation of God. Let me touch on that just for a moment, if you will. How to correct hypocrisy. It's really just change. Genuine faith. He that ordereth his conversation right. That word conversation there, it has the idea of a road. It has the idea of a direction taken. Reminds me of the 37th Psalm. He says this, the 37th Psalm. Mark the perfect man. For the end of that man, do you remember? It's a way of peace. It's marvelous, isn't it? Early in the verse, he talks about the righteous man falling down and getting up seven times. And then he contrasts that with the wicked man who's falling down. He never rises again. Listen, there's a lot of common humanality between believers and unbelievers, between saints of God and sinners. What do you mean? We're still going to have to breathe air. We're still going to have difficulty. We're still going to have disappointment. But here's the thing. The child of God engaged in a consistent, persistent walk and genuine worship ordereth his conversation of right. He's made his priorities in life God's priorities. That in itself is remarkable. It is an easy thing in this society to make your priorities whatever the world tells you to make them. Often in our society, it's about gain and wealth. In our society, it's about relaxation and mental health days. You need to relax. You've worked hard. Of course you've worked hard. That's what the American dream is. You thought it was free. It's not. You've got to work all the time to get the American dream. And it's so elusive, it can disappear in a moment. And so if you order your right according to the American dream, according to society, if that's how you're ordering your conversation, your road in life, at the end of your life, you'll be a far put from the presence of God. But if you'll make your priorities God's priorities, I should reverse that. If you make God's priorities your priorities, the end of your life will be marked by an attribute of the presence of God which the world can never buy. P-E-A-C-E. The world would pay millions upon millions of dollars to in their old age 
have peace. But Isaiah so bluntly prophesied, There is no peace to the wicked, saith the Lord. Paul, contrasting the worship of a genuine child of God, says, Do you remember the fourth chapter of Philippians? The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your heart and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. He that ordereth his conversation aright will I shew the salvation of God. Superstitious religion and external worship survives, though sacrifices have ceased. Hypocrites and formalists still cast God's word behind them. It's a modern and ancient sin. But old to the child of God that forgetteth not God and ordereth his steps aright, he shall worship in his holy tabernacle. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.